All right. Well, good morning, and um, my name is Sam. For those who don't know me, I think a lot of you do. Um, we are beginning a new series, and so there is a booklet that uh, we produced or produced uh, for your personal study, for uh, listening to sermons and taking notes, for the group study if you're in a road group, uh, and then also for some family times. And this is a little bit of a different one, and I'll explain that as we get going. So you need to grab one. They're, they're free, obviously. Just take one either before um, or on your way out. And uh, we just went through five weeks of Habakkuk and loved it, although it was a difficult book to get through because it makes, makes you face some really kind of difficult things about faith. But I enjoyed it, and um, this, there are some study guides in the back still, I think, for that one if you need it. But this new series is called uh, Charge, and it is a verse-by-verse uh, study of 1 Timothy, and it's the first of really three letters to two young pastors named Timothy and Titus, and it could have very easily uh, been written today as we find that basically we are still struggling with many of the same things that they were going through uh, 2,000 years ago uh, when they were first penned. And this, uh, in this letter, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, charging this young pastor named Timothy to fight. And he is supposed to fight to protect the truth, and he is supposed to fight to protect this church at Ephesus, the city, where wolves have come in and they want to deny what is biblical doctrine and deny um, or destroy, to say, the church from the inside. It's amazing to talk, whenever the Bible talks about wolves, it, it often talks about them from within the church, not from the outside. And oftentimes we're so worried about the stuff coming from the outside that we maybe are blind to the stuff that's right next to us. And as with Paul's style, which I really like, he writes with boldness and without apology. And so you are, or should be, maybe a little offended at times. Um, but this letter is full of incredibly hard words. And... All of his words, though, are motivated by, first and foremost, a love for God, a love for his word, and a love for his bride, the church. And so Paul does, as, as we will do, charges Timothy to draw some clear lines in the sand and to take some particular stands and to defend some specific truths from false teachers, many of which, as I said, we're still dealing with today and are very controversial, even amongst churches. And so we will take, so to speak, some markers and make some lines and distinguish ourselves from others. But along with this command to fight, and it's a very important letter for me because I would characterize myself as a young pastor. It's a little bit older than Timothy maybe, but not much. Um, he encourages Timothy to be more than just an apologist, more than just some intellectual warrior that can defeat anybody with, with really good doctrine and Bible verses and some kind of you know, MMA Bible thumper. He is supposed to be a pastor and a shepherd, and he is supposed to feed the sheep, which is very important, but he's also supposed to care for the sheep and watch over them and make sure that, that they are loved. And so in choosing 1 Timothy, and, and we do choose it as an elder group or board. It's not like I kind of put forward an idea, then we discuss it, and even at our elders meetings, we've gone through Timothy of how we should preach it or how we should talk about it as a group. But we are choosing in this, in choosing this book to reveal the uh, biblical rubric 
to measure how we lead this church. It's kind of like, all right, this is what it looks like. Test us. How are we doing? And so it's convicting for us, but it provides a, a clear blueprint for what I think is most important and what the Bible thinks is most important and what is not. Because quite frankly, there's a lot of churches, including ourselves at times, that get that little confused in the most important thing to you, whether it be your music, your graphics, or whatever, even your chairs, isn't really what's most important. But that becomes the dominating thing that you have to have. And clearly, truth is what Paul sits on. And so... As we grow as a church, we, uh, we need to regularly visit the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, all these letters to pastors, to make sure that we are refreshed, that we are corrected if we're off the mark, and that we're directed as to where to go next. And so it's going to be tempting, I'm just telling you now, for, for those who are not pastors here, to dismiss First and 2 Timothy and even Titus because it's just for the professional pastors. And I want to warn you not to do that. Um, one of the greatest responsibilities that the church, I believe, has, that I have, that Mark and Jim and Chris and Aaron have, is to equip you to pastor your home. That's one of the most important things. And some of you have larger churches than others, so to speak. Okay? And some of your churches are growing. We have lots of congregants back there that are uh, part of your, your churches. And some of you are just yourselves, but there's someone that's probably listening to you preach. But our responsibility, I believe, uh, is to make sure that we are pastoring our first home, or sorry, our first church first. And so it's to live out what I think Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us, not only to parents, but to grandparents, and even to people who hope to have families, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your home. The last time you did that. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so, I don't produce this for my own health. This is a little bit of a different book this time. And it's to call, honestly, particularly men, but it's parents, whether you're a single mom, whether you are a single hoping for a family, but particular parents and grandparents to use this. And you'll go through and you'll see that there's study guide and whatnot, and there's a couple appendixes, and a couple of them are, one is how to lead a small worship service, for lack of a better term, in your own home. We've just started to do this in our own home because I don't want my daughter to turn into the girl and footloose with the red boots and she's the typical pastor kid who hates church. So we're trying to separate a little bit our worship of God with just church. A lot of us think that our Sabbath is Sunday, right? Sabbath is Sunday, that's when I do my church stuff. And we go about the rest of our week not talking about God, not worshiping God. And so we've established a time to worship God together. And it's pretty crazy sometimes. We've had our kids make up songs. 
and they're not real creative, but we use them. We've written them down. It's, they go like, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Him. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, and that's it. Alright, let's sing. And we sing it. And we light candles and we have a little liturgy. And we read the Bible together. Outside of Sunday. Well, you're a pastor. No, I'm a dad. I'm a dad and a husband. And I'm just leading my kids the best I can. And I don't... Do I do it every single week? No, we're getting better at doing that. But I've laid out some plans for you and given you all the things to remove all the excuses and the obstacles you have to give you this picture of something that can be beautiful and wonderful because you have that responsibility. And that's what today is about. Don't go into this letter thinking, well, this is just for pastors. No, this is for you. This is for you and your home. So the the series is titled Charge because I believe it's actually going to be a fight. And the first fight is going to begin against your own sinful flesh. That little voice that that comes up every time a sermon is preached and you think that it's intended for someone else. That voice. And most men and women and even young people give in to that voice and they sit back and they watch others fight the battles that they should probably be fighting. And there are some battles... There are some battles that are only intended for you to fight, that no one else can fight for you. And though we're all in the battle together, okay, we're all in the same battle, so to speak, together, the same war, if you choose not to fight, if you choose not to fight for what is most important, and all kinds of excuses will come up, I'm too old, I don't have kids anymore. I'm too young. I don't have kids yet. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I'm too uneducated. I don't know my Bible. Whatever excuse is going to come into your mind, know that first of all, that's not from God. Because you have been charged to lead and to protect certain group of people. It may not even be in your immediate family. And if you choose not to fight... They will suffer because you have not defended them or because you have not equipped them to defend themselves. That's what this is about. It's much more than just church. For pastors, it's for you. It's for us as dads, as moms, as grandparents, even as young people. So we'll begin, though, to set up the stage of where Tim- who Timothy is as a, get a snapshot, kind of like we do with Habakkuk, of, of history. You're going to need to be in the book of Acts. Okay? If you start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, you'll need to be there. And the, the book of Acts is kind of a, a history, if you will, a snapshot of what happens as the church begins and grows. And I want to kind of lay up or, or set the stage for where we see this fighter named Timothy come in. And we need to understand that about, um, we need to understand, I guess, how at 30 years of age, this is about probably how old he is, how this young, ill-equipped, uneducated, and inexperienced pastor finds himself with the painfully wonderful task of leading a church full of wolves in the middle of a metropolis, which is a very big city, that is dedicated to a feminazi cult, to the goddess Diana. That's his stage that he's in. And about 15 years before this, give or take, 
before this letter was even written, at about the time when Jesus died and rose from the dead, the author, Saul, or Paul eventually, was a respected and accomplished Jewish Pharisee who hated Jesus. And Timothy, he was probably in his early teens, living in a city called Lystra, with a Jewish mom and a Greek father. In Acts chapter 1, though, at that time when he's living in Lystra, Jesus has risen from the dead, and according to Dr. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, Jesus hung around for about 40 days after, or after his resurrection before he ascended to heaven. And right before he leaves, right before he goes up into the clouds, he tells his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait because he's going to send the Holy Spirit and they're going to be in power to be witnesses. Okay? So if we start in Acts 1, we're going to fly through this very quickly. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 in particular. And he tells them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, a couple angels sitting there, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming again, and we are still waiting for that day. But at the Feast of Pentecost, so shortly after this, which is about 50 days after Passover, okay? So 50 days after Passover, the Spirit falls, and you read this in Acts chapter 2. Spirit falls, empowers them. They start prophesying and, and preaching, and Peter stands up and he gives his first sermon. This is the guy that 40 days earlier had denied you, 50 days earlier, had denied Jesus and became somewhat of a, a wimp hiding away. Now he's been emboldened and he's preaching. And he stands up, and his sermon isn't really clever or complicated or, or anything. He pretty much says, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Repent and believe. Which brings me an incredible amount of comfort when I preach sermons to just go, okay, because 3,000 people came to faith after that. Glorious. Simple. And that's pretty much the same thing we preach today. Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead to give you new life. He's coming again. Repent and believe. There you go. And I could walk away and would have proclaimed the gospel. But 3,000 people believed and they started to be this thing, the bride of Christ called the church. And in Acts 2 it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, taking communion, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and all had things in common. So they start gathering as a church. They start being the people of God in a new way. And as Acts unfolds, you start to see the leaders of the church rise up. And Peter and John, and James as well, become these guys. Peter and John in particular are soon arrested for their preaching. And they're thrown in prison. And they're healing people. And their sermons really don't change too much. And they're pretty much proclaiming the exact same thing and they're told by the authorities not to speak anymore because they're speaking some exclusive truths. And you read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, as they're part of one of their sermons, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, same thing Peter was preaching, whom God raised from the dead, by him, they just healed somebody, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a very powerful verse. Do all roads lead to heaven? No, they don't. Unless it goes through Jesus, you ain't getting there. And Acts 4.12 says that. So they go throughout the countryside preaching this, and they get beaten, thrown in prison, and the authorities are like, don't preach this. And they're like, well, if God wants us to preach this, you can't really stop us. We're going to listen to him and not you. And so the leaders of the church make themselves evident. And then in Acts 5 and 6, as the church grows, they have to get a little more organized because there's a lot of people. And so whenever a church grows, basically two types of people show up, sinners and servants, and there's some overlap in those as well. But what I mean in sinners is that they have to deal with sin. And you read it in Acts chapter 5 where these people basically are lying and they have to call them on their sin. They have to decide what they're going to do when people reveal their sin. And they're like, well, that's no big deal. Or are they going to confront it? So they decide to confront it. In addition, you've got a lot of servants, people who want to serve and people who are not being fed. And you read this in Acts chapter 6. And so they take these servants and they begin to organize to make sure that they, as the elders, are making the most important things important but also people are getting served and cared for because they're the shepherds of the, of the church. And so in Acts chapter 6, they begin to organize. And he tells them, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven of men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, who will appoint to this duty, which is feeding these uh, people who have been left out or ignored accidentally as they've grown. So, but we will devote ourselves, the elders, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And there they sat before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So, we've done this exact same thing. We proclaim the truth. People began to gather. And we've gotten more organized over the years, and we've installed deacons just within the last year to make sure that many of the ministries are going, and we're doing what you know, we're supposed to do and not concerning ourselves with what we shouldn't. So the church begins to be organized. Well, it's about this time that the church, in, as it's grown, starts to get persecuted, in particular by the author of this letter. And Jesus had told them, you're going to be witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, but we're going to move out from there into Judea and Samaria and the rest. And that's pretty much how the book of Acts is organized. But they're not real comfortable getting out of Jerusalem yet, so they bring persecution, which kind of encourages them to move out of Jerusalem because they're all getting killed. So persecution comes and gets them moving. And Stephen, one of these guys who we'll characterize as a deacon, he's kind of known as deacon, though it never really calls him that, he preaches an awesome sermon about Jesus. He basically goes through the entire like history leading up to Jesus, and then he gets stoned for doing it. And there's a guy holding the coats of everyone that stoned him named Saul. This zealous Hebrew of Hebrews Pharisee, as he watches in approval, Stephen get killed. And as we get into Acts chapter 9, this murderous guy named Saul is on his way to a city called Damascus. 
and he is going to arrest Christians, and calling him murderous means he is killed and probably going to kill other Christians. And so he begins to travel to this city, and Jesus shows up and knocks him on the ground and says, what the snarf are you doing? That's my translation, but pretty much, what are you doing, Saul? And whenever a bright, flashing light with power shows up, it's probably best to address it as, who are you, Lord, is what Paul does, or Saul does, because he's not really sure, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And he says, go back in Damascus. Well, he's blinded by this. And so he's walked by hand into Damascus. And there's a guy there, as Paul's waiting somewhere in the city, there's a guy there who's a believer in Jesus named Ananias. And I know I've told this story before, but God comes to Ananias, and it's a great, great dialogue, because everyone knows who Saul is. Saul is the killer. Saul is the reason why people have moved out of Jerusalem. Saul is the reason why Stephen, one of the first martyrs, was killed. And he goes to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 13, and says, first God, prior to that, says, I want you to go find Saul. He's in town. I want you to go pray with him. What? Okay. (laughs) Acts chapter 9. But Ananias answered, Lord, um, I've heard from many about this man. There's been a lot of people coming this way, talking about Saul. And how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. I, I know what this guy's done, Lord. Are we talking about the same guy? And verse 14, and here, coming to Damascus, he has authority from the chief priest. Okay? He's coming with authority to bind all who call on your name. And you're telling me I'm supposed to go, hey, I'm Ananias, I'm a Christian, and I'm here to be with you. He's got authority to kill me. I don't know about that. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so he does. And he goes and prays with him. And his eyes are opened, that being Saul. And he is transformed into this amazing preacher for Jesus. And as time goes by, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Peter... Pastor Peter is going through his own changes. He's leading the church. Uh, James is you know, one of the three, Peter, James, and John. James is killed. He's murdered, martyred. And uh, up until this point, Peter uh, has been a Jewish disciple of the Jewish Messiah, and he's really just kind of thought that this is all for the Jews. So that's really what he spent most of his time in. And God gives him a vision in a, in a dream, and he shows him, that salvation is for the whole world, meaning that people from every tribe and every tongue will experience the grace of salvation. And so Peter, after going through an experience with a guy named Cornelius, where he sees this happen, he goes back to Jerusalem and reports to his brothers, and he read in Acts chapter 11, says, if then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us, this is verse 17 of chapter 11, Gave him the same gift, that being the Holy Spirit, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so suddenly it's opened up. And the mission field is huge, not just to the Jewish people. You see the church growing. And then you get into Acts 13, and you start to see the changes that have happened to Paul, where he's become this evangelist and this church planner. And he now is being called by his Roman name, Paul, having become very much a different person. And before his faithful meeting with the risen Jesus, as I said, he was a persecutor, he was a killer, and now he is an apostle, guy who has seen Jesus, been taught by Jesus. He is a church planner. He is a missionary. He is a martyr eventually, beheaded outside of Rome. But he is also the author of more than half of the New Testament. And he preached the gospel to the Jews to begin with, but even more so eventually to the Gentiles who had never heard about Jesus. And throughout his ministry, he himself became intensely persecuted, incredibly persecuted. And one city where he visited on one of his journeys was called Lystra. In Acts 14, this is what his experience was. He would go from city to city, and he'd pretty much come in, and they were all full of idols. He would condemn their idols, and it would not very often go well for him because basically people would come to believe, and then the people who were making the idols were out money, and so he caused a lot of problem. But in verse 19 of chapter 14, it says, But Jews, these guys followed him to Lystra from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul as he was teaching, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So it's not like they threw one rock at him. He was like, boom, he must be dead. He was pounded on. Pounded on, Okay. They drag him out thinking he's dead because he's just destroyed. But when the disciples gathered about him, because they weren't real near him when he was being stoned, it seems, he rose up, so Paul gets up, enters the city, goes back in, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, so he's still preaching, which is just ridiculously amazing, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, the guys that had stoned him, and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue to face, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How beautiful is that? I'm going to get stoned. I'm going to preach to the people who watch me get stoned. Then I'm going to go back to the cities where people stone me and preach to them too, as an honor to God. And he said when they appointed elders, so he had churches planted in there, for them in every church, the prayer and the fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So it's in Lystra, though, where young Timothy lived, and it's assumed, believed in Jesus, maybe at that moment. He had a Jewish believing mother, and he later joins Paul's ministry on his second return to Lystra in Acts chapter 16. And here's what it said in verse 1 of 16. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek and most likely not a believer. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. He's probably his late teens. 
But he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Ow. Okay. This isn't circumcision at, you know, eight days old. Guys, you know, 18, 19 year old dude. He's like, yeah, we're going to circumcise you. Uh, okay. And it might seem kind of strange even. You read it and you're like, really? That seems kind of legalistic. Like, why would, why would Paul do that to him? And I think in many ways it's, it's very missional. And at this point, Paul still has an evangelistic kind of method where he goes into the synagogues and he begins by preaching to the Jews. And it's not until Acts 18 where he basically is like, that's it, I'm going to the Gentiles now. So up to this point, he's been preaching to the Jews first and foremost. And so the power of this passage is not what Paul does, but it's what in Timothy, I think, agrees to do to sacrifice for his mission, to make himself in many ways more culturally connected with them. Sometime, though, on his second missionary journey, Paul planted the first church in the metropolis of Ephesus while Timothy was with him. And he attempted to preach earlier there, but the, Holy, the Bible says the Holy Spirit prevented him in, in Acts 16. And Luke records that Paul later came back and spent three months preaching in the Jewish synagogue and in Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem. We see this in Acts 19. And Paul's preaching was well received. I mean, they listened for, for several months and then suddenly it turned hostile. And so he took all the people who believed and he continued to teach them for the next two years in a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. The Bible records this. So he spent all this time teaching and preaching, and Timothy's there with him. And eventually Paul had so negatively impacted the cultic practices of Ephesus, because it is completely cultic. It is dedicated, it's very feminist. It is dedicated to the, the goddess of Diana, and it's just incredibly cultic. And so he had kind of impacted it negatively, obviously, or positively in the light of the uh, eyes of the Lord, and a riot ensued. And so Paul left Ephesus because of this, this riot. But before he left Asia, he calls the Ephesian elders, and you read this in Acts 20, gets all the Ephesian elders together. And here's what he tells them. And this is what leads us into this letter. He gets them together, and he says, basically, protect the flock, because wolves are going to come from within. They're going to rise up, and you need to lead them, this flock, to the truth and away from those wolves. And he prays with tears, and it's read in Acts 20. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. That's first. Verse 28 of chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Those are the words he leaves Ephesus with. And shortly after his departure, it's pretty clear that the false teachers that he talked about showed up in Ephesus. And at some point in the future, he dispatches Timothy, who spent 
probably 10, 15 years with him at this point, ministering, to deal with a list of church problems in this church. And according to the pastoral letters of First and Second Timothy, he has his hands full. And in these two letters, Paul gives Timothy both personal encouragement, but also some very practical directions or instructions according to 1 Timothy 3, for the purpose of showing how one ought to behave in the household of God, in the church. And the letters, though, they reveal a picture of this man who is young. He's shy. This is in, you're obviously inferring much of what Paul wrote, or from what Paul wrote. He's suffering from some kind of chronic stomach thing. Could have been stress. You can understand that. He is relatively immature, not in a juvenile way, but in a pastoral way. He's inexperienced. He loves Jesus, but he doesn't necessarily know what he's doing leading the church at Ephesus. Welcome to the life of Sam Fort. That's why I like this letter. But he's there fighting. He's there. He's not complaining. He's not arguing with Paul. He's there. And I have to wonder, how's he doing it? What gets Timothy to this place? And this is where I really want to rest. What gets Timothy to this place where he was prepared to do this? To to fight a battle for the faith that really he felt ill-equipped and inexperienced to do. What set him on that path? And so in order to understand, I think, how this young man is prepared to face these challenges, we have to look at the second letter, just a couple verses in it. Paul wrote the second letter, Timothy, as the last letter, the last thing he wrote, right before he was martyred, he was beheaded. So it's a huge, I think, impactful letter because it's the last words he's going to give. And he spends it giving to his son in the faith, Timothy, whose dad was probably not a believer, and so... Paul was probably in many ways a father to him. In 2 Timothy 1.5 says this, and this is a verse that um, Jim and I actually discussed quite a bit. It says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That's a verse that we'd read over, I think, without stopping most of the time. But Paul here attributes the strength of Timothy's faith to the influence of his mom, Eunice, and his grandma, Lois. There's no mention of Paul's or Timothy's dad. He was a Gentile or Greek, probably an unbeliever. And we talk a lot about the impact of dads. And here we see a huge impact of moms and grandmas. But I'll loop them together. Most of us, I read, are going to live an average of about 78 years today. Most of us. But we're going to be impacted by what I think is well over 100 years of life. And we affect and are affected by three generations, I believe. Those that come before us and those three that come after us. But I don't know if we actually approach life that way. Our great-grandparents, most of whom we may have faint memories of, I don't think I ever met my great-grandparents. 
but you have your great-grandparents, our grandparents, and of course our parents who influence us. And then how we live our lives is going to impact the generations that follow us. Our children, our grandchildren, and their children, which are great-grandchildren. I mean, have you ever looked, and I've done this more as I've, I've parented and gotten older, have you ever looked at your mom and dad, thought about the way they did things, who they are, and then kind of looked in the mirror and said, oh yeah, that's where that comes from. No, never. Right? Or, for me, more practical, looked at my children and thought, where is that coming from? And looked in the mirror and went, oh, on big and small things. We're all pastors. Okay? We are all pastors. We're all preachers. And let me just sober you to something, which is we all preach sermons way beyond Sunday with our actions or the lack of action. We all preach sermons through our words and definitely through our silences. And we all preach sermons through the values that we live, not just the ones we say. There's a difference. And we all preach sermons through what we worship and how we sacrifice. And we all preach sermons through what makes us joyful and when we are joyful. And we preach sermons through our terrible sufferings. We're always preaching. And someone is always listening. Always. Sometimes it's our immediate family. Sometimes it's friends who are over. Sometimes it's just people we happen to be in the, a realm of influence with. And you had sermons preached to you. Some good, some bad. I'm not talking about Sunday morning sermons. I'm talking about Monday through Saturday sermons. And many of you were impacted incredibly by those sermons. For better or for worse. For some of you, your fathers and your mothers were crappy preachers. And they didn't care for you as a shepherd. I understand that. And some of you had fantastic sermons preached to you. Doesn't mean you listened and did everything that they said, but you had some fantastic ones preached to you. And I savor and value those who have grandparents and great grandparents preached to them. That's incredible. I didn't have that. I wish I did. But the Bible teaches us that, that we are in a fight, that we wage our battle, and how we wage it is going to impact others. And Mommy Eunice. And Grandma Lois raised Timothy. And here's what they did. Another powerful verse in 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's actually verse 12, but we'll keep going. While evil impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue, talking to Timothy, Continue in what you have learned that you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Check this out. And how from childhood, 
You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, with Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. His grandma and his mom didn't read the ten steps to being a better parent. Didn't go to the seminar. They put before him, as first and foremost, Deuteronomy chapter 6, they taught him the sacred writings, the Scripture. However that looked. And my question for myself, because don't assume, because Sam's the pastor, he's got this all figured out and does it perfectly. Wrong. I'm just the one that gets to stand up and say, look what I found. Whoa. But without question, you have to ask yourself, what have blank, my son, my daughter, my parents, my grandchildren, my wife, my friends, those who are in my care, what have they learned and what have I set before them? What have I set before them? Men, women, mom, dads, kids. Because every kid, my son is preaching to my next son. He is. Sometimes quite organized and formal. But he is preaching to them. Grandparents, just because your kids are out of the house doesn't mean you're not preaching, doesn't mean you're not fighting. Great-grandparents, you are charged with a couple things. One, to protect. Same thing that Timothy is. You are charged to protect. You are an under-shepherd of Jesus' flock. It means he is the great shepherd and you are an under-shepherd. And Timothy is charged to protect the sheep from wolves that come in to your church. There's a little idol box in your house. It's called a TV. It preaches all kinds of things. All kinds of sermons coming out of that baby. And you have to ask yourself, what's coming into your home? Is it a wolf that will lead to unbiblical truth? As pastor parents, I like that, pastor parents. We can talk about pastor dad. We can talk about pastor mom. Okay? Pastor parents. Because it's a, you know what, it's a, it's a joint thing. And some of you are single moms though, but you still have responsibility. And you can do it according to Mommy Eunice and Grandma Lois. You are charged to protect those in your care from false truth. Dare I say, you'll be held account for not protecting. Paul's charge is not like a suggestion of a good idea. This might be something you want to take care of. It's a command essential to life. Now and in the future. Belief in true or false doctrine. In this first chapter, he hits doctrine so hard, and people are like, I just don't like doctrine and theology. What is true is that belief in true or false doctrine is what, according to Paul, sets one's life toward joy and safety or toward sorrow and shipwreck. It's doctrine. It's what the Scriptures teach. And you've set something before Him to set a direction for the life of those in your care. And a direction was set for you, quite honestly. In your life, maybe you went to shipwreck. But it's supposed to be set for joy and salvation and wisdom with Scripture. But men and women and moms and dads and kids and grandparents... And great-grandparents are also charged to lead, not just to protect. What does leadership look like? Well, avoiding the sewer water is not just the only responsibility. 
You've got to pursue the pure water of God. And the thing about this is that he charges Timothy, this guy who's inexperienced, uneducated, comparatively speaking, ill-equipped according to his words, it seems. He is charged with the responsibility to lead, and he has to make a decision to move. That's what leaders do. They move. They don't sit and ponder for years. They move. They do something. And excuses that Timothy is probably thinking of, such as, it's a difficult task. I'm ill-equipped for this. Feelings of inadequacy, which all kinds of men use. I just, I've never read my Bible before. So start. I mean, you can sit and I, I just don't know forever. Realities of age, like, well, come on. My kids are gone. I'm 60-some-odd old now. Who, who can I impact? A lot of people. Some just here in this church. We are called to lead just as Timothy was. And if you are the man, the woman, the mom, the dad, the kid, the grandparent or great-grandparent, you are the one chosen for the job. You are the one chosen for the job. You cannot be passive. You have to be active. You have to speak. You can't always forever remain silent. And you have to take responsibility and stop blaming your daddy wounds, your mommy wounds, your bad church experience, your rebellious kids. Whatever it is, you're, stop blame shifting and take responsibility for what you're called to do. Not even how others respond to it. You're called to lead. And men and women and moms and dads and kids and grandparents and great-grandparents, you are called and charged to teach. Not just lead and move, because sometimes you're just leading and to someone who can teach. And that's a start. That is a good thing. But, the pastor, Timothy, doesn't only rebuke and exhort or otherwise resist just false truth. He actually proclaims the truth. And Paul doesn't assume that once people stop drinking from the toilet water of the world that they're just suddenly going to pick up the you know pure bottled water of Jesus and start chugging away. Unless they're taught to. In order to denounce or proclaim, in order to actually teach, you first have to learn. You have to be a learner in order to teach. Kids would always ask me why I wanted to be a high school teacher because they thought it was stupid because you didn't make any money. Okay? And I said, well, I didn't become a teacher because of you. They go, what? I said, well, I, you know, it's neat to see kids learn and, you know, have that moment of, ooh, that's fantastic, great, okay? <laughs> it was very selfish. I love to learn. And as a teacher, I could learn whatever I wanted because I was calling the shots. Done with that. Let's learn this. That's on the book. I don't care. I want to learn it. And it's good for you. You've got to be a learner. There's a reason why the Old Testament's always saying, feast on the Word, delight in the Word, meditate on the Word. We should have to Learn. We have to learn in order to teach. And then the question for all of us, and I include moms and grandmas, but I think men in particular, are you the resident theologian of your home? Can you answer the questions? Not all of them. Then start learning. 
That's what I want to be here is to help you learn, to equip. There's lots of ways to do that. But you've got to learn. Otherwise, false truth will come in and you won't even be able to tell the difference. And lastly, men and women, moms and dads and kids and grandparents and grandparents, you are charged to pastor. You're charged to protect, you're charged to lead, you're charged to teach, and I think you're charged to pastor, which means, yeah, you're charged to defend, and you are charged to you know, teach the truth, but Timothy's also charged to love, to love, to care. All of our actions in, in fighting for the truth, that's what ends up with a guy who's like, no, just a Bible-thumping freak that doesn't love anybody. You know all the answers, but you're a jerk. That's pretty much what it comes down to. And you can be critical, and you can instruct, and you can tell your friends and your kids and your child where they're going wrong, but not in love. And you can't hold them and care for them and just walk with them. You have to have an answer, and you have all the answers. That's me very easily and I'm learning but people in our care whoever is in your care okay people in your care are not to be viewed as your project to fix they are to be cared for because we love them and the best way to love them is to give them the truth and to live that out sometime without saying a word but it's both. And again, the question for all of us is, if you're not protecting, and you're not teaching, and you're not leading those in your care, are you actually even loving them at all? Just because they're connected to you by blood, and they live in your home, and you give them food and clothing, doesn't mean you love them doesn't mean you're pastoring them. You could very well be turning your eye to what they should be being taught and learning and being rebuked by and cared for and all these things, but you're providing for them, so you, well, you know, and therefore abdicate what you're actually supposed to do. There are some battles that only you can fight, and you are charged in this letter to fight, to wage the war, And though we are in the battle together, we are in this battle together, and we are supposed to encourage one another and stir one another on towards good works, if you choose not to fight for what is most important, because you're too old, too young, too busy, too whatever, you and the people that you have been charged to lead and protect will suffer because you have not defended them, or you have not equipped them to defend themselves. That's the truth, and that's where this book is going. The question, I guess, for all of us is, are you living with intention? Are you living with intention? If you die tomorrow, what legacy are you leaving behind, and how are you going to be remembered? Not for you, but in the lives of the people that you've touched. Some of us will leave no legacy at all. Because... We refuse to fight. Some of us will leave a legacy, honestly, for faithlessness because you let other people fight where you should have. And some of us will leave a legacy of a false 
faith because we fight for the wrong things. And a few, by the grace of God, will leave a legacy of faith that lasts generations. And the beauty of taking communion every Sunday is that reminds us of the gospel. And it's active. It's not passive. It's a confession of our sin and a confession of God's grace. It's a confession that I can't work myself to you, God. You have done all the work for me. And it confesses that grace is ready right now to forgive and to cleanse and to change. And it's never, ever, ever, ever too late to start fighting. It's never too late. Whether you're a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a grandparent, a great-grandparent, it's never too late. And God can use whatever time you have left to bring glory and honor to Him. It's never too late. And I pray that as we read this, we don't read it at a distance of, well, this is how you pastor a church. You make it a little more personal. If you read this book, I don't know how you can avoid at least trying to do that. Let's pray. Father God, we ask, first of all, we praise. For you are a warrior. And you have already fought the biggest battle that needed to be fought. And you have already claimed victory over sin and death. And so therefore, in your blood, we claim that victory. And by your Spirit, you have empowered us with the desire and the ability to fight. And I pray that you will awaken the fighters in us. That you will help us to wage war against false truth, against sin, as we pastor those who are in our care. We confess, Lord, that we have failed to fight. Confess that I have not even thought about my legacy past tomorrow. And ask that you will embolden us to be warriors for you through the words to Timothy. In your son's blood we pray. Amen.